open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And over the last several weeks, we've been focusing on the task of evangelism, that individually and corporately we are to be a, a people on mission to share the truth about who God is, the greatness of what God has done through Christ, the provision He has made, the offer that He has extended to us. And I think oftentimes we hear about these spiritual realities and we we get excited for a moment and we leave and we get into the grind of daily living and we begin to forget about what God has done, about what God desires to do. And so as we think about this task of evangelism, as we think about God using us individually and corporately to do something that can only be explained by Him, I want to emphasize this reality, and I alluded to it earlier on the announcements, and that's this. We have a big God. We have a God who specializes in the impossible. Now we think about that and we go, yeah, yeah, I know what God did way, way back in the day, but uh, what about me and, and how does this work for me and what about now and this is also different and surely God has changed. Has God changed? Is there anything different about the God of the Bible and the God that we serve today? Is anything different? Not a thing is different. The only thing that is different is the current environment in which we live out our lives. And most of that is really designed around technology and advancements. The heart of man has not been radically changed from the beginning of the fall. It's just being lived out in a different set of circumstances in a different era. But we still serve a big God. I believe that we often underestimate and we often forget that we are deeply and completely loved by this big God. Think about that. The God that is really indescribable, that is far above and beyond our thoughts and our imagination, our wildest dreams and understandings, loves us completely and perfectly. He has made every provision for our spiritual growth. He has made every provision for our spiritual impact into a world that is dead and is on the fast track to hell. God has empowered us to make a difference. Beyond what God is capable of doing, God desires that we see these things done in and through our lives. It is God's desire that we experience the fullness of the provision that He has made for us in our relationship with Him. And our lives are to be a living testament to His power and His greatness. Now, I've only been here for around six years. I did not know you as a teenager. I did not know you when you were a challenge to your parents, when you were perhaps in in human terms beyond hope. (laughs) Some of us were. I was raised in a non-Christian home. I knew nothing about God. I knew nothing about the Bible. If you would have looked at my life as a 15, 16-year-old, you would have said, my, oh my, there is no hope for that young man. And there wasn't, aside from a big God who loved me completely and perfectly and called me to Himself 
two of my favorite verses in all the Bible speak of the greatness of this power that God has. This greatness that has been extended to believers throughout all time. The greatest of this power is not for the purpose of self-elevation or for self-satisfaction, but for something far greater and more noble than that. And that is very simply for the glory of God. That's it. Our lives are to be about the glory of God. Our lives are to be pursuing a path by which we can bring glory to God. Here are my two favorite verses in all the Bible. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, to Him, excuse me, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. These two verses are often called a doxology or a liturgical praise of God. And they appropriately complete Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And I believe Paul's prayer for all believers everywhere for all time. And our focus is going to be on the content of this prayer and then the application of these two verses to it. So reading now in verses 16 through 19, the preceding prayer that is the cause of this great praise to God says this, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the first request that Paul makes in this great prayer is a request for spiritual power. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. That He would grant you. You personally, me personally, that God would grant to me, according to the riches of His glory, The spiritual power. Three observations about this request that Paul makes. The first one is this. We do not naturally possess power. It is not within us. We do not have the power. This is why Paul prays that God would grant us this power. This is why it's verbalized to us in this way that we would pray that God would grant to us this power. We do not have this power. We can't become who God wants us to be apart from this power. We can't do what God has called us to do apart from this power. We cannot have victory over sin apart from the power of God. We cannot resist temptation apart from the power of God. We cannot conform to the image of Christ apart from the power of God. 
cannot, we cannot endure difficult circumstances apart from the power of God. We're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not well connected enough to be able to do that. We must pray to experience the fullness of the power that God has granted us. Jesus would say this as he was gathered with his disciples on the eve of his arrest. He would say in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there are a lot of people that would have a problem with that statement. What do you mean I can't do anything apart from being connected to you. We can't do anything spiritually that brings glory to God apart from our intimate connection with Jesus. We just can't do it. We can do things for God, but we don't do it in the fullness of His power. We might see some impact in what we do, but not to the full extent of His power. The second observation is God gives us this power according to his riches. God gives us his power through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He gives this power according to the standard of his glory, of his riches and glory. That word according to, that phrase means to the standard of, it is a measure of the power of the power that God gives to us. And it may surprise you that He gives so according to the riches of His glory, to the fullness of divine perfection. God gives to us power according to the riches, according to the fullness of His glory. We often give out of our wealth... But it's very, very rare that man gives according to his wealth. I've used this analogy or before. I've said this in a couple of different messages. But uh, the Rockefeller, I think it was John, one of the early Rockefellers who amassed a great fortune in the early 1900s. He used to walk through the town and he would be admired by the masses and little kids would run up to him and he would pat them on the head and he would give them a dime and he gave from his wealth. He didn't give according to his wealth. He could have given each of these children thousands and thousands of dollars and it wouldn't have affected his bottom line at all because of his wealth. But that is not how God gives to us. God doesn't give from his wealth of riches and glory. He gives according to The wealth of His power. Think about this. We're going to look at this in great detail. Think about the power of God in creation. There was a time when there was absolutely nothing. And God didn't spend years and decades and centuries thinking and figuring and calculating and working to create all that is. God simply said, let it be. And it was. That's power. That is incredible power. It is power that is beyond our understanding. It's power that is beyond our imagination. God gives us power according to 
His riches and glory. It doesn't mean that we possess the same power that God possesses. We cannot create like God does. But God gives us power to be and to do who He has created us to be. Third observation of this is that power comes through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come through self-effort. It doesn't come through, through determination. It doesn't even come through sound doctrine. You can know all the truths about God, but that does not mean that you will possess the power of God to be who He wants you to be and to do what He has called you to do. It only comes through the Holy Spirit. To be strengthened with power means that it is abundant, that it is dynamic, and that it is miraculous. It means that what God desires to do in us and through us can only be explained by Him. That's it. Whatever change is wrought in our lives is attributed only to the power of God given to us through the Holy Spirit. It isn't through our years and years and years of reading or of praying or even of trying. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a purpose to the power that God gives to us through the Holy Spirit. It is for our transformation. It is for our ability to resist conformity to the world. It is for our ability to overcome the power and the presence of sin. It is for completing the purpose of our being saved, which is now a life that is to be lived in service to Him. God didn't save us because heaven had plenty of room and there was a lack of people and God was like a little bored with the people that were there and says, you know, we need to add some people. We need to add some folks to this place. It's a little sparse. I think I'm going to save some people. That's not what it was at all. God saved us with a purpose. The purpose of our salvation is to serve Him, to be changed by Him, to be a walking, living testament of the greatness and of the power of God. This transformation is through or by means of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling our lives. It is how the power of the Holy Spirit is realized through our lives. It is how it is appropriated It is how this abundant, dynamic, miraculous power is made available to us. We read these verses and we've looked at these verses. Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you are confronted with this individual that needs to hear the Gospel and you go, I don't know what to say. I can't do it. I don't have the strength. You don't. He does. And it is His power through you that enables you and I to speak the words of life and truth. This Spirit that has come upon us has empowered us to speak the truth of the Gospel. It has empowered us to be able to endure the criticism or the ridicule or the rejection that comes upon us for being a person who stands upon the truth of God whatever the cost. But this power comes upon us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but it is only realized as we yield to it, as we submit to Him, and as we seek after bringing glory to the name that is above every name. 
Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, how does an individual get drunk? Well, that's not rocket science, right? I mean, an individual chooses to consume an amount of alcohol that would have such an overwhelming and overpowering effect upon him that it would be obvious to anyone who looked upon him that he was drunk. The slurred speech, the staggering walk, the actions or the attitudes that are radically different from that individual that I knew pre-drunken state. Well, the idea is the same, is that we are to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that our speech, that our actions, and that our activities are to be radically affected by this miraculous, abundant, dynamic power that attributes the greatness of God in and through our lives. We are to experience this filling daily, In our lives, it is a choice that we make and it doesn't happen just accidentally because we have been filled. This filling takes place, as Paul describes, in the inner man. The inner man is an all-encompassing term that means our heart, our mind, our will, our soul, our ever, everything, all-consuming thing. It's no coincidence that Jesus said you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It is everything that is a part of the inner man. That's where the filling takes place. And this filling takes place when we intentionally choose to yield and submit ourselves to Him. Author D.A. Carson says this, that this... This request for spiritual power is a plea for a power to be holy. A power to think and act and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Christ. Power to strengthen moral resolve. Power to walk in transparent gratitude to God. Power to be humble. Power to be discerning. Power to be obedient and trusting. Power to grow in conformity to Christ. How many of you want to say that this is increasingly true of me with each passing day of my life. If this is what we want, then we have to choose the things that will enable that to happen in our lives. It just doesn't happen accidentally. It just doesn't happen because God has made it available. It happens because we pray to be strengthened with the power of God according to His riches and glory. The result of this spiritual power in our lives is very simply this. Christ reigns. The beginning part of verse 17. Pray for all of these things so that Christ may dwell in your in your hearts through faith. Paul is not talking about salvation. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's not saying these things so that people can understand how to be saved. He's speaking about these things so that the power of Christ may result in Him reigning and ruling 
over our lives. That word to dwell means to inhabit. It means to settle. It's to be at home. It's to be rooted in the center of the believer's lives. It means that he sits on the throne of my life. You know who's the greatest threat to the throne? To Christ being on the throne of our lives. You know who the greatest threat to that is? It's me and you. Itself. Christ desires to rule in our lives, to reign on the throne of our life, and we say, eh, I don't think so. Not right now, not today. Not in this area. So Jesus, I just graciously ask you, the Lord and the author of my salvation, to please remove yourself from the throne of my life so that I can do what I want, what pleases me, what makes me happy. Have you ever said that? I've never ever said that. But you know what? I do that all day long. It's, it's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. But this is exactly what we do, is we kick Him off the throne of our life so that we can do what makes us happy. The second key truth here, or thought about this, is that Paul is talking about lordship. Not talking about salvation. He's talking about lordship. That He may dwell in our hearts through faith. Heart is the very core of self. It is where the mind and the emotion and the will and the whole self of our being comes to root or rest. It is the inner man. So lordship comes through faith. It comes through trust and obedience. His power in our lives equals greater faith and more consistent obedience to what God has called us to do, what we know God wants us to do. I used this earlier, and it's it's a... Um, a summarization of a book written by Robert Munger called My Heart, Christ's Home. And in this book, he uses the, the illustration that when we are saved, Christ comes to live in our home, in our inner man, in our whole being. And so as he comes into, our, into the home of our life, he goes from room to room, and he begins to clean it up and center it with who he is and what he has said and what he desires. And so in the book, he, he mentions the, the library. The library is the mind. It's where trash and all sorts of worthless things are sitting, and he replaces them with his word. He goes into the dining room, which is indicative of our appetite, our sinful desires that are laid out for us on a worldly menu. Isn't that the truth? Uh, Things like prestige, and there's materialism, and there's power, and there's lust. And he begins to replace them with Christian virtue like humility and meekness and love. He goes into the living room, the place of fellowship where all of our worldly companions and our worldly activities take place. Into the workshop where the toys are being made, and then even into the closets where our secret sin is hidden from everyone except for him.
And so on and on he goes through the entirety of the house. And here's what Robert Munger says. He says, only when he has cleaned every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness can he settle down and truly be at home. That's what it means for Christ to be on the throne of our life. The epitome of lordship is trusting in Him to do whatever He desires. And instead, we build fences to keep Him out. We yank Him off the throne saying, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. That's too difficult. The indwelling presence of Christ within us ought to be what motivates us to follow Him more fully. As He exposes sin in our life and our desire of Lordship is challenged, we ought to cry in repentance over our indifference, our unwillingness. The more we are aware and conscious of Christ within us, the more we will walk and live in obedience to Him. Imagine having a, having a guest come and stay with you for an extended period of time. When they come, what do you typically say when they come into your home? You say, we're so glad to have you. Please make yourself at home. Right? Now, when I came here back in uh, 2017, I stayed in several, year, several of your homes for a week at a time, and everybody said, please, make yourself at home. Now, imagine if I came into your home, and I decided I didn't like the color of the walls, and I started painting them, and I said, I don't like the way you've got this place set up, and start moving the couch and things around, and I moved the pictures, and I said, you know, I don't think you really need these things anymore. I'm going to start selling this stuff. What would you, what would you say... If that's what happens, you say, who do you think you are? You're a guest in my home. You don't have the right, you don't have the prerogative to do that. Now imagine if you, if you can, that you were to sell your home and for some reason you were going to continue to live in that home while the new, new owner came in and they started painting the walls and rearranging the furniture and selling off stuff. What would you say? Well, you say, it's your house. Do whatever you want to do. So when Christ comes in to reign in our lives, do we think of Him as a guest or do we think of Him as the owner? Paul prays that we would be strengthened so that Christ may reign in our lives. The second request that he makes here is that we would experience his love. Verses 17b through 19a. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Well, there's a lot in there, and there are two truths. We know something about his love, don't we? That in God's great love, He extended to us this gift of salvation. We know something about the love of God. But Paul prays that we would be rooted 
in God's love. It's the idea of being planted in the love of God. So this is a planting season, isn't it? So if you think about that pot that you have in the, in the soil and the nutrients that you put in there, you're going to put a plant into that pot. Well, you think about that soil and those nutrients being the love of God, and that plant is your life. It means to be rooted into the richness of that soil. It's the idea of being grounded. It's laying a foundation that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. So you put these things together in our lives as Christians are to be firmly rooted and planted on a foundation of God's love. Now that means a whole lot more than we can adequately explain in our time together this morning. But if a plant grows out of what is in that potted soil mixture, then it makes sense that our lives are to be growing out of the same thing, the love of God. When we grow out of the love of God, We reflect His love. We replicate His love. We live in His love. So we know something about the love of God, but our understanding is incomplete. That's why Paul prays that we may be able or more fully able to comprehend the love of God. To comprehend means to lay hold of. It is to seize. It's the idea of grasping onto this thing that we don't fully understand. And this side of heaven we cannot fully understand. And I believe that we lack comprehension of the love of God because we resist the Lordship of God. I think the more lordship that is in our life, the greater our understanding of His love. Because the reality is the closer that we get to God, the more unlike God we recognize we really are. In the reality that God thinks about us, as we read in Hebrews this morning, what is man that you take notice of him? Paul prays that there would be a greater understanding of his love. He uses four words that describe the immense love of God. The first one is the breadth. Love which is wide enough to embrace the entirety of the world. 1 John 4, 9-10 through By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He talks about the length of God, a love which is long enough to last forever. It stretches from eternity past into eternity future. Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, In 1 verses 4 and 5, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Before the foundation of the world, 
He loved us. To the ends of eternity, He loves us. The length of God's love is immense. C.H. Spurgeon said, it is the love of God is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. Isn't that a good thing? So long that your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Isn't that a good thing? So long that your successive temptations shall not drain it dry like eternity itself. It knows no bounds. The length of God's love. The height of God's love. A love which is high enough to take us sinners to heaven. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. My, oh my, oh my. The depth of God's love, a love which is deep enough to take Christ to to the very depths, to reach the lowest sinner of which we can all identify. Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But He, Jesus, emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Paul talks about knowing the love of God, he's not talking about an intellectual knowledge. He's talking about one experientially. It's not this emotional love that is so familiar to us where our palms get sweaty and our stomach kind of gurgles and our mouth gets a little bit dry. That's infatuation. That that goes away. The love of Christ to be known experientially cannot and will not be exhausted. It is inexhaustible. And to know that more fully means that it It seizes us in such a way that every moment of every day is lived in light of the immenseness of God's love. A.W. Tozer wrote these words, Because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is an incomprehensible, vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. His love surpasses our knowledge, but Paul prays for our comprehension of this great love. The result is that we will be filled up with God. Verse 19b, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To be filled up to the fullness means complete saturation. It's like pouring water into a cup. The cup will reach its limit where it can no longer contain the substance being poured into it. It will become fully saturated or even into a sponge. There's only so much moisture a sponge can hold and it reaches a point where it just begins to saturate and drip and it pours out that that water that's being dumped onto it. That's how the love of God is to be in our lives. It is to be so, it is to so saturate our lives that it just pours 
out from us. To be filled up to the fullness, this Greek verb is in a passive tense, meaning that God is the one that does the filling. We can't fill ourselves. He is the one that does the filling. It's a very staggering thought. That we can be filled with the fullness of God. This has exactly happened with the God-man who was fully saturated with the person and the presence and the character of God. Colossians 1.19 For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. 2.9 and 10 For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in Him, and in Him you have been made complete. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to the extent that He dwells within us. And yet we must be filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit so that He has saturated us in such a way that we are now empowered to live the life that God has called us to live, desires us to live, that the world needs to see lived out amongst us. Think of every attribute and every characteristic, every characteristic of God. His power, His majesty, His wisdom, His love, His mercy, His peace, His patience, His kindness, His long-suffering, and everything else that describes who God is or what God does. God does. It is His desire that we be filled up to the full of who He is and what He has done. Paul prays that we would experience His love so that we would be filled up to the full with Him to the point where we can't contain anymore. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with God's power so that Christ would rule and reign in our lives. He prays that we would have a better understanding of the completeness of God's love so that we would be overwhelmed and overcome by His love for us. And we think about these two great requests that Paul has made. And we think, man, how can that possibly be? Those are such huge requests. They are beyond my wildest understanding. They are beyond my imagination. I can't envision a life being lived in that reality. And Paul says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that? God desires to do more than we think He can do, than we even think to ask Him to do. And He desires to do that through the Holy Spirit that He has given to us. And He can do that in increasing measure as we are consumed by the love of Christ. He tells us the purpose of God's desire to do more than we ask or think. And it's tucked so neatly in this verse. It's so that God would be glorified in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations. 
than God's people are to say. Amen. What is it that we are trusting God to do that can only be explained by Him? What is it that we are desiring God to do that can only be explained by Him? If our expectation and desire is just to make it to the end of the next week, or to the next month, or to the next stage of life, we have totally missed the purpose of our salvation.